So welcome everybody. Hello and thank you for joining us for what I hope will be an interesting and informative discussion around some of the latest data in rheumatology. My name is Professor Peter Nash from the Griffith University in beautiful downtown Brisbane. And today I'm delighted to be joined by my friend and a very renowned scholar, the Norman Colliston Chair of Musculoskeletal Sciences at the University of Oxford, Professor Peter Taylor. Welcome, Peter. Thank you for giving up your precious time. We greatly appreciate it. Today, we're going to be talking about one of Peter's recent publications in RMD Open, which is looking specifically at achieving pain control in early rheumatoid arthritis with baricitinib in their monotherapy RA BEGIN study, where they compared Barry by itself with methotrexate or against methotrexate. So welcome, Peter. Great to see you. You too, Peter. Okay, so would you mind starting off by just telling us a bit about the jack market in the UK? What's happened and has it changed since oral surveillance? Well, it's an interesting question. We have four approved jack inhibitors in the UK. So we have filgotinib, we have baricitinib, tofacitinib, and upratacitinib. And of course, the oral surveillance data has raised some questions about the class and uh, certainly about tofacitinib. And the EMA in Europe have actually recommended that tofacitinib shouldn't be used in over 65-year-olds unless there is no other viable alternative. And this has impacted somewhat on tofacitinib prescribing. But on the other hand, the uh, uptake of JAK inhibitors in general has been very good and uh, really very successful, and the experience has, has been very good. And have you seen, we're not getting filgotinib for some bizarre reason, um, something to do with um, they wanted to see the manta ray results before they would right. approve it. And then it turned out that from the press release, at least, that the incidence of the spermatogenesis issue, the sperm count was lower in the placebo arm than the treatment arm, but uh, <laughs> that's beside the point. So has Filgo made an impact? Has UPA made an impact? Well, they've both made an impact and specifically in the UK, it's been very interesting because, as you know, we have to grapple with NICE and NICE look at the issue of health economics. Uh, and of course, um, the, the pricing situation in the UK is very complex because there's a list price, but there's also a locally negotiated price that's done behind closed doors on a tender system. And in fact, NICE have agreed that both upatacitinib and filgotinib can be accessed for patients with rheumatoid arthritis with moderate disease activity. And, and of course, that's opened the doors to a larger number of prescriptions at a relatively earlier stage of the disease. Okay, so that's great to set the background. So let's talk a little bit about this study. Would you remind the listeners about RA Begin? What, what was that study? Thank you. Well, RA Begin was one of the pivotal phase three studies for baricitinib. And as you mentioned earlier, this was in fact in a population in which the drug is not formally approved in a DMARD naive population. But in that population of patients with early rheumatoid arthritis who, in whom you would expect fairly robust responses to any efficacious therapy, we compared methotrexate as a monotherapy versus baricitinib as a monotherapy at a dose of four milligrams once daily, or baricitinib plus methotrexate. And the study um, progressed over 52 weeks. And in fact, 
both baricitinib in monotherapy or in combination with methotrexate showed a higher degree of efficacy than methotrexate monotherapy. And you also looked at some very interesting pain outcome measures where you looked at 30% pain improvement, 50%, 70%. Could you give us a bit of a background to those measures that most people have not seen before yes. and if they were validated somehow? Thank, thank you, Peter. Well, it's an interesting question. In fact, the story begins in a way with a different study. It begins with the RA Beam study, which was a similar um, study in the phase three program in methotrexate inadequate responders. And in that study, we compared baricitinib at four milligrams once daily plus methotrexate with placebo plus methotrexate and with adalinumab plus methotrexate as an active comparator. And one of the, one of the very striking observations in that study is that when we looked at pain reduction from baseline, the reduction in pain was much greater in the baricitinib plus methotrexate arm than it was in the active comparator, adalinumab plus methotrexate. And initially, this was observed in terms of the mean reduction in pain. And one of the clear observations was that the differential between those two was observed very early on within a few weeks of treatment onset, within four weeks. Now, we then went on to look in more detail at the magnitude of pain relief across individuals. And just for the benefit of any viewers, I should explain that the baseline pain across the study was very standard at about 62, 63 millimeters out of 100 on a visual analog scale. Now, we noted that the magnitude of pain was so high in some patients that we thought, well, could there be any validated thresholds of percentage of pain improvement that we might address? And looking at the chronic pain literature, it turns out that a group called the IMPACT group had in fact described two uh, levels, proportional levels of pain improvement. 30%, meaning a major improvement in pain that was of clinical significance, and 50% improvement from baseline, which they regarded as a really very good and substantial improvement in pain. Now, those were the, the thresholds they defined in the context of chronic pain. We then invented another one because we saw that the outcomes in some patients were so high, and we added in another threshold of 70% improvement from baseline. And in short, in, in the RA Beam study, what we noted was that many more patients achieved a substantial level of pain improvements with baricitinib plus methotrexate than either adalinumab plus methotrexate or placebo plus methotrexate. But the baricitinib patients achieved it in half the time it took the adalinumab patients. So extrapolating from that study, we thought, right, we'll apply these same thresholds of 30% and 50% improvement, plus our exploratory X threshold of 70% improvement in a post-hoc analysis of the ERA begin data. And is there a minimal clinically significant difference with those measures? Do the patients, is 30% a very clinically significant reduction? So, so 30% is regarded by chronic pain specialists, as you say, as a very significant reduction. But we also looked at some other measures in this study to address um, the very point you raised more fully, and that is to look at residual pain. So um, 
the score we used throughout and the only available metric we had from the clinical trial measure was the visual analog scale on 100 millimeters. So the patient had scored their pain between zero and 100. In RA begin, the baseline across the different uh, treatment arms was 66 millimeters out of 100. Now, if you achieve 20 millimeters out of 100 or less, that's regarded as a minimal level of pain that is acceptable in terms of minimal impact on quality of life. And so some people have referred to that as a patient acceptable state or use that sort of terminology. We also looked at an even more stringent threshold of 10 millimeters or less of residual pain. And that would be regarded as really minimal or no pain. And so they could broadly be considered as the equivalence of remission versus low disease activity, the 10 and, and the 20. Um, I, I think it more or less corresponds to that sort of um, evaluation. And what a great metric to start telling our patients, we can strive to get you in almost no pain and right. compared therapy. So that sounds fantastic. So tell us a little bit about the results, please. Well, thanks. So uh, it, it was very interesting. So in RA Begin, what we looked at is that the, uh, the magnitude of improvement across each of the treatment arms and the kinetic of improvement. Uh, and what we found is that if you look at, let's say, a substantial improvement, which is 50% improvement from baseline, that both baricitinib groups exceeded considerably the magnitude of patient, the proportion of patients achieving this on methotrexate alone, and did it very much more quickly. So by the time we got to 52 weeks of treatment, well over half the patients who were exposed to baricitinib were achieving this degree of improvement and in about half the time it took with methotrexate. And interestingly, there didn't seem to be an advantage of Barry plus MTX versus Barry alone. Yes, that was interesting. So in fact, numerically, the best results were seen with Barry plus methotrexate. But from a statistical point of view, there was no difference between the monotherapy and the combination. That's right. Interesting. And um, as far as the um, pain measure that was the pain out of the pain score, was that did that do the same thing as these percentage reductions head in the same direction? Yes, absolutely. So the high proportion of patients achieve these thresholds of low residual pain. I can't remember exactly what the percentages were off the top of my head, but we can look those up and quote them if viewers would be interested. But um, not only did a high percentage achieve those, but one of the things we were interested in, what would the consequence of that be if you maintain that very low pain threshold over 52 weeks of drug exposure? And so we were able to compare the area under the curve for these data for the methotrexate arm versus the baricitinib arms, either with or without methotrexate. And the consequence of it was that there was about a, an additional up to eight weeks or more per year, per 52 weeks, that patients would have this very low level of, of pain. And as, as you said earlier, when we communicate achievable outcomes to patients, I believe this is very important because to have two additional months out of a year where you are essentially pain-free is obviously a, a very meaningful outcome from a patient perspective. Very tangible. It was about 80% for the proportion of patients with um, less than or greater than 5SF36 pain component improvement. So that's very impressive. Um, and it does speak to this pain story of the JAX. 
where they seem to, they don't cross the blood-brain barrier. It must be peripheral effect. And then whether it's GMCSF or IL-6, what's your thoughts on that? Well, in truth, I don't know. And there are many hypotheses about this. And I must say, although you're absolutely correct that based on preclinical model data, the dogma is that these drugs don't cross the blood-brain barrier. Whether that's really true or not, I don't think is known with certainty. What we must remember is that when there is a systemic inflammatory response, there is a degree of leakiness of the blood-brain barrier. And it's certainly conceivable that there could be some crossing. But even if we assume that none of this is a central effect, there are a number of hypotheses. I think the first point to emphasize is that JAK inhibitors by their nature are multi-cytokine inhibitors. So these drugs will inhibit signaling of any cytokines in the type 1, 2 family, of which there are many. And of those cytokines, we know that many are strongly implicated in pain pathways. And you've mentioned some of them, MIL-6 and GMCSF, as you said. Interestingly, GMCSF signals through JAK2 homodimers. So you would expect it to be modulated much more by a drug that has some effect on, on JAK2 signaling. And of course, baricitinib does as a JAK1-2 inhibitor. Um, but there are some other cytokines that are really curious. So IL-17, which you, Peter, of course, are very familiar with, with all the fantastic work you've done with uh, psoriatic arthritis, and we know it's a good target in psoriatic arthritis, but not on its own in rheumatoid. And yet IL-17, which isn't traditionally thought of as signaling through the Janus kinase pathway, there is some evidence that in astrocytes, there may be signaling that's JAK mediated. So in fact, that we know there are a number of cytokines that are, are modulated at various points right through from the synovium and peripheral nociception, the pain that's associated with inflammation, right through to the dorsal horn, to uh, glial cells, and so on. And it could be at any of these points, potentially, that JAK inhibitors modulate the pain signaling pathway. But that also implies that not all pain signaling is necessarily linked to inflammation. So there could be cytokine-modulated pain that is essentially non-inflammatory in nature. Do you think um, this opens the door for other chronic pain conditions and for topical jacks? Well, I think it's a really interesting question, and my hunch is yes. Um, but at the moment, we've only got indirect data for that. And again, some of the best indirect data, I think, comes from a, a field of your particular expertise, and that's skin psoriasis and psoriatic arthritis, where, in fact, um, in fact, we've recently published some data looking at tofacitinib and the modulation of itch and the contribution of uh, itch and pain to patient well-being. And in fact, itch is often considered to be an aberrant form of nociception. So the, the biologic, the neurobiological pathways that mediate itch and pain are, are probably uh, very similar. So um, the fact that you can get very nice modulation of both itch and pain in psoriatic arthritis strongly suggests that um, this is a possibility. But at the same time, I think we need to be very clear that um, many of our patients who do have uh, very marked complaints about pain, but have absolutely no evidence of any inflammation and quite possibly fit into a more fibromyalgic category, in my view, it wouldn't be wise to be using a potently immunosuppressive drug in a fibromyalgic patient. Conversely, however, 
I think there may be many patients with genuinely an inflammatory condition where the inflammatory component is optimally suppressed, but they still have residual pain, and where JAK inhibition may give a more favorable outcome than monocytokine inhibition with a biologic. So it's sounding very interesting, but there's so many post-herpetic neuralgia, diabetic peripheral neuropathy, lots of interesting things to test. And in at least in PSA, there's, there's studies now with combination looking at, because of the safety of the 17s and the 23s, you add a JAK or you add a TNF. So maybe you're 100% correct. We'll be able to work on inflammation and pain with the dual approach. Yes. Um, do you think the bean counters, the regulators, will see 10 weeks extra pain-free in a year as something that is worth um, funding, if you know what I mean? Will they see pain as part of the quality calculation that they make with all these things? Well, this is certainly an interesting question, and I think there are many elements to that. Um, I think as things stand at the moment, probably not. But on the other hand, I think in our lifetimes, and certainly in the, I would suggest in the last five years, we're seeing a major movement in the way that uh, payers think about funding drugs. So in some European countries, for example, patient reported outcomes carry a greater weighting in considering reimbursement issues than was the case before. Um, with respect to NICE, they, they, as you say, look at cost per quality. And I'm not entirely persuaded that quality of life years fully um, uh, accepts the, the, the burden of pain that, uh, uh, sorry, burden of disease or, or quality of life that pain contributes to that total burden. Um, so I think at the moment, probably not. However, of course, should the costs of some of these drugs come down dramatically, then I suspect thinking will change. And we mustn't forget that tofacitinib will come off patents in some parts of the world very soon. And um, in most of the world, I think within the next four years or so, something of that time frame. So, so the landscape is likely to change. And the trends that I think we're seeing at the moment are firstly to pay more attention to patient reported outcomes as a contributor to the totality of quality of life. And secondly, um, this, this trend towards emergence of generic drugs in the not too distant future. I think um, you're, you're right on because not just this one, but the other Jacks have also done monotherapy type studies and shown superiority over methotrexate in various measures. Um, and do you think we'll ever see the day, if cost is eliminated, where methotrexate won't be first drug of choice, maybe a jack might or a combo, and then you can stop one or the other if the patient's in a good state? Well, the evidence that we already have strongly supports that that would be a reasonable and um, completely acceptable approach for those patients with more severe expression of disease, moderate to severe disease activity. However, I think the unresolved issue, uh, if price were not an issue, is whether or not the risk-benefit equation over the longer term is going to be similarly favorable between methotrexate and JAK inhibition. And all the data we have so far, I think suggests that it probably is a favorable equation, but there's a great deal of scrutiny about this at the moment, as we all know. And we're going to have to see how this plays out. Um, 
for me, a really important point is as follows, that every drug we use carries a potential for benefits and a potential for risk. And I think it's very important that that equation is acceptable in the eyes of the patient. The worry I see in some of the data that emerged, for example, from oral surveillance, is that in fact, when you look at the numbers of patients needed to harm, when you compare to two different treatment modalities, in the case of, for example, a MACE event, it would appear to run to over 500 patients. Now, that doesn't mean to say we can be blasé about safety issues, not at all. But it does mean to say that we as rheumatologists have a heritage of mitigating risks, just as we learned to mitigate the risks of TB reactivation with biologic anti-TNFs. And I think if we have appropriate mitigation strategies in place and that the benefit risk equation is acceptable to the patients, then absolutely I would see JAK inhibitors as being an appropriate and indeed um, possibly favoured first-line choice of drugs mm. because of the speed of onset, the magnitude of pain relief, and another hypothesis, the hypothesis being that they might prevent the evolution of central sensitization over time. But that is a hypothesis and uh, certainly not proven. Something to keep you busy in the years ahead. But, uh, you know, I, I agree entirely. So the predictors of who's at risk will be more important than ever so that we can help individualize. So a take home message, please, from a, a very nice study. And I think we'll, will you see these pain measures being used more and more in rheumatology? Well, I think so. Um, the good old VAS has both pros and cons. It has all the sophistication of an orthopedic surgeon, doesn't even tell you which bit of the anatomy is, is actually painful. And yet it's a very well validated tool used widely in clinical trials. It is discriminating between a test drug and, and a, a placebo and also against the comparator, as we've just heard. And it's very, very easy to use and it takes virtually zero time to complete. So I think it's here to stay. I think we may also see other more sophisticated pain measures. But the, the summary for this study really is it shows very nicely in this DMARD naive population with very high burden of disease at baseline and high pain, 66 millimeters out of 100, that methotrexate is efficacious, as we all know, but baricitinib is even more efficacious, both with respect to disease activity measures, but particularly with respect to pain, and that over the course of a year of treatment, this will gain two months or more of essentially pain-free time. And certainly if I were a patient with this condition, I would find that a very meaningful outcome. So the rapidity of onset's important, but again, one final point, if I may make, Peter, is that we mustn't forget as clinicians that what we explain to patients and set expectations is really important. And there is a spectrum. So whilst JAK inhibitors in general and baricitinib in particular do work remarkably quickly, there will be some patients who take correspondingly longer to achieve the optimum outcome. So we, we do need to set expectations appropriately. So thank you so much. That's superb. Thanks, Peter. If you'd like to know more about this paper and others uploaded to this CSF website this month, you can get detailed slide sets are available in the publication section at cytokinesignaling.com. Please subscribe to this podcast on iTunes or wherever you get your podcast media and give us some feedback and let us know what you think. Thank you so much, Peter. Greatly appreciate it. Thank you, Peter. Take care.